Well, good morning again to you, and if you have your Bibles with you, you can take them and turn to the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea, as we begin uh, officially, last week we did an introduction to the series we're calling the Book of the Twelve. Again, we're calling it the Book of the Twelve as this is how this collection of what we know as the Minor Prophets would have been referred to by ancient Judaism. Uh, The Minor Prophets comes from a Latin phrase, and there's nothing wrong with calling it the Minor Prophets, so I don't want you to think that you're you're sinning by calling it that. Uh, And I'm not necessarily really trying to be cute, but I just kind of thought we'd jump back a little bit and go to how the ancient uh, Judaism would have understood these collection of books. Hence the name, the Book of the Twelve, or simply just the Twelve. Hosea, the book of Hosea. We're just going to read. Uh, we're going to re- read very few passages. It's fourteen chapters. Uh, we're going to we're going to cover the entire book, but we're not going to read all of it, of course. Hosea chapter one, beginning in verse one. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. That's the southern tribes. And in the days of Jeroboam, and this would have been Jeroboam II, the son of Joash, king of Israel. That's the northern tribe. Verse 2, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, And she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. He he was a king of the north. You can find his story in 2 Kings uh, where where he's a very murderous man. He goes kind of on this killing rampage. That's what he's talking about there. And he says, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her, ha- call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, the southern tribe, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned No Mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name Not My People, for you are not my people and I am not your God. Verse 10, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. For some, the love of God is simple. That is, God takes the role of some sort of cosmic comforter and is just a nice guy, or a cosmic provider, and he's just kind of a a nice guy to have around. For some, God's love is sentimental. That is, he takes the role of, of, uh, of, of the cosmic comforter who sees no wrong and demands no obedience. And even as if you've been with us in ABF, we're talking about people who are taking definitions of God, or words or labels for God, and they're changing the definition. And so, yes, God is a provider. And yes, he is a comforter. It's the right labels, but in a lot of people's hearts and minds, it's the wrong definition. We tend to define God's love based on a high view of ourselves. 
and a low view of Scripture and a low view of God. And so Hosea, the book of Hosea, as we walk through this, is going to help us see the true definition of the love of God and how great the love of God really is. Let's set up the book of Hosea. The prophet Hosea, as we read in verse 1, prophesied to the northern kingdom. And it was, it was actually a time of great economic prosperity. King Jeroboam that we read about in verse 1 actually expanded the borders even more so than Solomon. And so it was great economic prosperity. But, there was, but underneath all of that great prosperity and happiness, there was, a, there was this deep spiritual sickness. Jeroboam II ruled during this time, but he would eventually be assassinated. As a matter of fact, of the six kings after Jeroboam, four of them would be assassinated. And only a handful would have any sort of meaningful reign on the throne. The land was filled with immorality. Murder was happening at the highest courts. The land was filled with idolatry. And this is the context of Hosea's ministry. Outward prosperity, deep spiritual sickness. And just the word that this sort of thing still exists today. We can see that if, if maybe one way to look at this, if you've, if you've got a, a facade, if you're wearing a facade, one way to figure that out is if you measure your spirituality based, and it consists solely on who you have fooled into thinking you are spiritual or you're actually saved, then you are truly lost. Let me say that again. If your, if your evaluation of your own spirituality consists of how many family members, how many pastors, how many church members, how many friends, whatever, how many of them you have fooled into thinking you're spiritual or you're saved and then you're lost. And Hosea now is entering the scene at a time when Israel was spiraling toward ruin because of her sin. And so Hosea comes to call out their sin, to call them to confess their sin, to call them to repent of their sin and trust in the living God and to be be faithful to him. As we read here in the first chapter, we we get the word harlot or prostitute. They were playing the whore. And that's the kind of language God is using to describe how Israel was acting. They were playing the spiritual harlot. They were leaving her lover to find satisfaction and security in other gods and in other nations and in other idols. And because Israel left God for idols and other things, God was going to judge them and he was going to punish them. He was going to discipline them. As a matter of fact, as we read through this, and we're not going to read all these, but here are some of the ways God describes how he's going to respond to Israel. Because of how he, he threatens to destroy them. To strip them of all their securities, to withdraw from them and discipline them, to cause them to fall by the sword, to trap them in the fowler's snare, to swallow them up, to depart from them and leave them as orphans, to reject them, to execute his burning anger against them, to tear open their breasts like a devouring lion, and to cause Israel to bear her guilt through discipline. All ways in which God is trying to get them to wake up to their sin and wake up to the true and living God. They weren't struggling. Isn't that how we describe our sin? They were struggling. God never looks at Israel and says, you're struggling. They were sinning. And we have problems swallowing the reality of how God deals with rebellious sinners. It's probably because we have an inaccurate view of ourselves. 
Our tendency is to start with us being innocent and mostly good and mostly righteous and, you know, mostly perfect. We start there and then we, then we judge the character and the love and the righteousness and goodness of God from that. Whereas we should start with who God is. And that's what Hosea is going to do for us. Hosea is a love story, if you could believe that. A story about the faithful love of God towards rebellious sinners. And he's going to give us three actions of the love of God. And that's what we're going to look at this morning as we cover the entire book, only chapter by chapter, little by little. In love, the first thing, three actions of the love of God. Number one, in love, God engages the sinner. That's in chapters one, two, and three. Chapters one, two, and three. God engages the sinner. He, he initiates the relationship. Now, I'm gonna, when, under this, in chapter one, we're going to look at the strange love story, which we just read. We're going to look at a picture of spiritual adultery in chapter two, and then an eternal truth we find in the short chapter three. But, so this strange love story. So here's the command. So, so get this. We read this. When the, when the, verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea. Okay, so the first divine command given to Hosea to start his prophetic ministry was to go and marry a prostitute. Now before you get into, okay, what's that all about? Just think about this godly man in the agony of forfeiting a normal domestic life. Must have weighed heavily on his heart. But he was devoted to the Lord and he was willing to live a sermon in action. God often asked the prophets to do that. Jeremiah walked around in stocks. Uh, Isaiah walked around um, almost completely naked in his underwear to, to, to show this sermon in action. I'm like, that's really weird stuff. And it is a little bit weird. But God is trying to make a point. It's a sermon in action. And his marriage, Hosea's marriage and his family were to be a vivid picture of the spiritual adultery that Israel was committing and what God is trying to tell them. So that's the command. Let's look at the ceremony with Gomer. So Hosea's wife's name was Gomer and was already mentioned uh, she was a prostitute. Now students of the Bible, they, they, and there's probably differing views in here on this. Was she a prostitute when they got married or was this something that happened later down the line? And I don't bring this out just for sake of, of no so, but I think it's an important question. Because many students of the Bible, they advocate for the position that Gomer became a prostitute sometime after their marriage. And they argue that's the way it had to be because Israel was pure when God called her out of Egypt. And only later did Israel become spiritually a spiritual adulterer. There's only one problem with that. And it's why I don't hold to that view personally. That is, Israel wasn't pure when God saved them. Israel began as an idolater. Here's what Ezekiel chapter 20 verse 6 says, uh, chapter 20. He says, on that day, he says, I, I swore to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them. A land flowing with milk and honey and the most glorious of all the lands. And then it goes on to say, and I said to them, notice this, cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on. Every one of you, do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. What is he saying? I'm about to bring them out of Egypt, but before I do, get rid of the idols. So while they're in Egypt, they're worshiping idols. And he says, I'm the Lord your God, but they rebelled against me. And they were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. So God is saying, I'm about to rescue you. Get rid of the idols. You're worshiping idols in Egypt. You're feasting on them. Stop it, and then I'm going to save you. But they didn't. 
And then there's another idolatrous moment, don't we? we it's the, the famous one, the golden calf in, in Exodus chapter 32. Hosea married a sexually promiscuous woman, and that's who God married when he married Israel. Israel was an idolatrous people who maybe for a moment stopped but would return to their idolatry, just like Gomer. We read in chapter 3, she was this promiscuous woman who maybe she stopped for a little bit there to, for the marriage and to be faithful, but she would return. Chapter 3, where he says, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man. He says, so, he says in verse 2, I bought her back. And we'll get on that in just a moment. That's who God marries. And that's who God initiates a relationship with. We have the children's name here, and we won't spend too long, long on that. We talked about Jezreel. We talked about no mercy and not my people. Just God is painting the picture here. You are no longer mine. You're, you're gone. You're done. It's over. And then in chapter 2, we have this picture of spiritual adultery. He says, plead with your mother, verse 2 of chapter 2, for she is not my wife, I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her, fr- her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. These are God's words to his adulterous wife. What is spiritual adultery? Because that's used a number of times in scripture. Uh, we'll look at James 4 here in just a moment, not right now, but we'll look at that. But it's the idea there that when, when our devotion is divided between Christ on one hand and the things of this world on the other, that's spiritual adultery. It's anything, but other, it's anything other than complete, total submission and devotion to God. And just as Gomer sinned against the love of Hosea, so you and I, so Israel, has sinned against the infinitely greater love of God. And this would bring judgment. God would leave them empty and alone. God is love, but it's a holy love. And I think we can just draw an application at this point as we even consider what God, God initiating a relationship with this sort of people. And that is humility. God loves us based on absolutely no merit of our own. And he loved Israel based on absolutely no merit of their own. We too have acted shamefully and pursued other lovers. We too love the things of this world more than we love God. We have attributed to others the gifts that God has given to us. We have loved the gifts and not the giver. And even after coming to Christ, we're given towards spiritual adultery. This is what James chapter 4 says. It says, you adulterous people. He's writing to Christians. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The love of God will become greater and will become far more deeper and will become more humble as we realize the depths of our sin and the depths of our idolatry and adultery. But in all this, it's God who engages the sinner. He initiates the relationship. Which brings us to chapter 3. As we talk about God engaging the sinner. Here's the eternal truth that we read about in chapter 3. And that is, God is faithful. One commentator describes the book of Hosea as as a tapestry of grace. Gomer leaves Hosea in chapter 3 that we've already read to go to another lover. 
And notice Hosea has to purchase her back. And it says in verse 2, 15 shekels of silver. That's half the price of a slave. So what happens is Gomer, his wife, apparently goes, and she's not just committing adultery. She, we might have a sense in which she maybe got involved in the, the cultish, uh, the temple prostitution. Maybe even becoming some sort of slave in the process. And God says, go to her. Go to her and get her back. And it was for the half price of a slave. Make no mistake about it. Hosea's or Gomer's sin cheapened her and your sin will cheapen you. It leaves us worthless and lost. But God promises to love and to forgive and to restore all who turn to him through repentance and faith. Which brings us to a great theme of this book is that our spiritual condition is never so low that God cannot rescue us back to himself. Gomer was at the lowest of lowest of lows. Yet she was purchased back by Hosea. And this reminds us that as sinners, we've also been purchased back to God. But it wasn't, as as the Apostle Peter tells us, it wasn't with gold or silver or precious jewels or stones. It was by the very precious blood of Jesus Christ. He paid the wrath-bearing price of our redemption. God engages the sinner He initiated the plan for sinners to be saved. This goes all the way back to eternity past where Revelation tells us there's there's a book of those that were written in the Lamb's book of life who was slain before the foundation of the world. From eternity past, 500 billion years ago, when time didn't even exist, God had on his mind that he was going to initiate a relationship with sinners through the death of his son. And that's always been his plan. And that's always been what he's done. He initiates a relationship with sinners who want nothing to do with him. Which brings us to kind of the meat of the book and kind of, and kind of a, a way in which we see this. Because God's love in action, not only does he engage the sinner, but secondly, he denounces our sin. He denounces our sin. And that's in chapters 4 through 10. That's kind of where God really gets into his indictment of what Israel is doing. That's where he really gets into the specifics of how they're sinning and the specifics of what he's going to do in judgment. Namely, the Assyrian army will eventually come in 722 BC, about 40 years after Hosea starts, and they're going to, going to defeat them and carry them off into captivity and slavery. But in denouncing sin, God wants them to realize something about their sin. And I want to give those to you. They're not going to be on the screen, but you can write them down. Number one, God wants you to understand the emptiness of sin. That's chapter 4. Chapter 4, look at verses 7 through 10. It says, the more they increase, the more they sin against me. He says, I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat, but they shall not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine. But notice that phrase in there in verse 10. They shall eat, but not be satisfied. This is the emptiness of sin. It will not satisfy. Sin will not satisfy. Now, sin may give you a thrilling experience. It may give you a buzz. It may give you uh, some sense of accomplishment. It may allow you to... vengeance on somebody you hate or give you a release for something but or a calm or whatever but it will never give you satisfaction you can continue to feed on sin but it will never truly satisfy 
But here's the thing about sin. While sin will never truly satisfy, it will give you what you truly want. And that's a life apart from God. Sin will never truly satisfy, but sin will always give you what you truly want, and that is a life apart from God. Sinning is forsaking God. Don't fool yourself. Don't fool yourself. Sin leads to separation from God. Sinning is forsaking God. And he alone can satisfy. And he alone can fill the empty. Uh, I meant to grab an empty glass here. I was going to set it here. But do you know, if, you have an em- if I had an empty glass sitting here, do you know, do you know how to get the, the air out of it? Pour water into it. Pour something into it. The way you get the emptiness of the air that's inside a glass is to pour water into it. And that's the same it is with your heart and with your sin. The way to get rid of the emptiness of sin is to fill it with the living water. He, Jesus says in John, uh, John chapter 8, he says, I'm the living water. Come to me, all you who thirst. I'll give you living water. That's how you get rid of the emptiness. You fill it with something. You fill it with something else. You can't suck the air out of a glass. You fill it with something, and you fill it with the living water. He wants you to know the emptiness of sin, and then the guilt of sin happens in chapter 5. Notice what he says here. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah, and a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim. Ephraim is another name for Israel. And Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. Notice this, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. And in verse 5, the pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. He wants us to see the guilt of sin. They shall stumble in the, their guilt. It is real. He calls the priests, he calls the king, he calls all the people to stand before him. The leaders, they were exploiting the weak and the ignorant. Idolatry filled the land, and God is saying, here we go. There's only one verdict that could possibly take place, and it's guilty. And it comes on all who do not know God. They lacked a loving, intimate relationship with God. If you connect this with uh, verse uh, 12 of chapter 4, he, he, this, this, he says, My people inquire of a piece of wood. And their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. Again, that spirit of adultery is within them. They lacked a loving, intimate relationship with God. They had no understanding of his character. They had no understanding of his ways. They had no understanding of his righteousness and his purposes. They just didn't know God. As a matter of fact, it says they inquired of a piece of wood. And they talked to their walking staffs. I mean, it was as if they knew more about the false gods than they did the true God. What do you know more about than you know about God? What do you know more about in this life, in your own heart, the gods of this world than you know about God? What controls your mind and your spirit? The day of punishment is coming for all who neglect a true, loving, intimate relationship with God. That's the guilt of sin. Chapter 6 and 7 Chapter 4 tells us about the emptiness of sin. Chapter 5 tells us about the guilt of sin. Chapters 6 and 7 tell us about the insincerity of sin. You cannot fool God. You cannot fool God. 
Now, 6 and 7 gives us a number of metaphors, and we're going to walk through them uh, just briefly. But the first one is in chapter 6, verse 4, where he says, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? It's like, this is like you get this, this picture of a parent here, you know, the, uh, of a child who's, who's just, and you just, you know, as a parent, you go, Oh my goodness, what am I going to do with you? Like, I just don't know. You know, teenagers, what am I going to do with you? What am I supposed to do? O Ephraim, O Israel, what am I to do with you? Your love, he says, is like, is like a morning cloud. There's the metaphor. Like the dew that goes away early. You cannot fool God. God, in this, we see this, God sees our fleeting love. He sees our fleeting love. You cannot fool him. Chapter 7, verses 4 through 7. Here's the next one. God sees our fleeting love. Chapter 7, verse 4 through 7. Here's what it says. It says, they are all adulterers. They are like, here's this metaphor. They're like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers. For their hearts, like an oven, they approached their intrigue. All night their anger smolders. In the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. So what is he saying here? What he's saying here is as he connects this with anger and wine and even their adultery, probably literal adultery. What he's saying here is that the fire of their lusts, the fire of their lusts, those evil desires in their heart, it was running rampant and it kept them from seeing the glory of God. The flames, as we read about in verse 7, they were, they were out of control. So not only does God see our fleeting love, he sees our lusting hearts. God sees our lusting hearts. That's what this is saying you can't fool God. He sees all the way to your heart. He sees right into the oven. He sees the fire. And then verses 8 through 10 gives us another one. This, one, this one's a little odd. This one, this one may not make sense to very many of us. But it says Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim, here's the metaphor, is a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him. The idea is he's getting old and he's getting near death, but they're not, they're not getting it. Pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God nor seek him for all this. So God not only sees our fleeting love, not only does he see our lusting heart, but he sees our veneer of strength. And that's what this picture of the cake not turned is. Uh, the cake, if you don't flip over, kind of have the idea of a pancake here. This is probably the best way to do it. If you, if you cook a pancake and you just leave it on one side, what's going to happen? One side is going to get really dark and black and unedible, while the top is still going to be kind of doughy. And so that's kind of the picture you have here. And he was was kind of saying, you're you're blind, he says, you're mixing yourself with the peoples. So they're going after Assyria and all these things, they're looking for strength in all the wrong places, that's leaving them burned on one side. Then on top of that, they're they're not returning to the Lord, and they're they're sinning, and so that sin is leaving them just kind of helpless and doughy and gooey on the other side. As I mentioned, death was knocking on the door, yet they did not yield their allegiance to God. It was just this cake not turned, this unedible, no good cake that's good for nothing but to be thrown away. He sees our fleeting love. He sees our lusting hearts. He sees our veneer of strength when we pretend like we're strong, but in reality we're weak. In reality we're we're going to all this other stuff to try to be strong. God says, you're not truly strong. You have no strength within you. And then verse 7, 11, verse 13. Here's another one. Verse 11. Ephraim is like a dove. 
silly and without sense. God sees our senselessness. When I worked for Conley Security, um, back when Amber and I were first married, so uh, 10 years ago, um, and a little bit before uh, we got married as well, um, I, I, was, I was tasked with being one of the patrol guys down at the Skywalk in downtown Des Moines. Um, if you've ever been there, you've probably seen them walking around, but it was, it, was, uh, it was where you had to go around and you walked the entire Skywalk, I think it's about eight miles total. But one of, one of, the, one of the funny things was, is as you walked the Skywalk, um, you, would, you would find imprints of birds on the bridges over streets because these doves and these birds that were flying around downtown, they would clean the windows and they wouldn't know that when they were flying that there was a window there and they would just, it was like Looney Tunes, they would just smack it, there'd be an imprint of a bird and then you'd find this pile of birds like flattened and run over on the ground beneath. And it's just this senselessness of birds, they're flying around everywhere, they don't even realize what's in front of them until smack they're dead. And they're gone, and they fall to the ground. And that's kind of, that's what God's saying here. Like if your bird brings, you're not thinking, you're, you're senseless, you don't get it. And that's sin. We just, we don't know where we're going. We're fleeting, flitting, flittering back and forth between this and that, between all, before all of a sudden, whack. And we come face to face with the wall of our sin. But more than that, the inverse uh, end of chapter 7 not only does God see our senselessness he sees our pettiness notice how he compares them in verse 16 you're like a treacherous bow you're like a bow that doesn't even work what's a bow supposed to do a bow is supposed to take an arrow and shoot it up and it's supposed to fly up and hit its target Israel is like a treacherous bow it's like they didn't even work there's a petty thing we missed the mark they weren't shooting up towards high things That's what Colossians tells us to do. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. He's like, you're missing every time. You're you're a deceptive bow. You take it back to you and it just falls to the ground. Worthless. And it's petty. You're not shooting up towards the high, calling things of the glory of God. You're, 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 You're meddling in the petty. And that's us in our sin. That's the insincerity of sin. And God says, you can't fool me. I see the pettiness you're giving your heart to. I see the pettiness you're giving your life to. It's not high and holy things. He denounces our sin. He wants us to see the emptiness of sin in chapter 4. The guilt of sin in chapter 5. The insincerity of sin in chapters 6 and 7. And then he wants us to see the cycle of sin in chapter 8. I'm just going to read two verses here. Verse 5 and verse 11. Where God asks him this, he says, I have spurned your calf. Apparently they made another calf in Samaria. He says, my anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? Like God is saying, how long before you actually act the way you should act and live and love the way you should live? But then I want you to skip down to verse 11 where it says this. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Verse 5 teaches that there was a complete inability on Israel's part to be free from their rebellion. And then verse 11, and I want you to get this, so pay attention. Verse 11 teaches us a very important principle about sin. And you need to have a category for this in your mind when it comes to your sin. Here's the principle will be on the screen. The more you sin, the more you'll sin. You say, where did I get that from? One's verse 11. 
Notice what he says there. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. It's like the more they sinned, they more, the more altars they set up to sin. And this is something that Paul picks up on in Romans chapter 6 as well. Notice what it says, Romans chapter 6, verse 19 says, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, notice this phrase, leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So again, slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, which did what? It led to more lawlessness. The more you sin, the more you'll sin. Which is why we have to kill our sin. In 2011, a South African farmer was tragically killed by a hippo he had raised as a pet for five years. This was reported on ABC News. Before the incident, the owner had boasted, he says, they think you can only have a relationship with dogs, cats, and domestic animals. But I have a relationship with the most dangerous animal in Africa. It'd be just a few months later when that pet, that most dangerous animal in Africa, would drag him into the river and maul him, leading to his death. And what could be more dangerous than a pet hippo? Is our pet sin. Like the owner of that exotic pet, we think we can just kind of, we can tame it. We can contain it. We think it'll obey. When we tell that sin to sit, it'll sit. When we tell it to stay, it'll stay. When we tell it to come, whatever we tell it to do, it'll listen. We think we can train it. We think it poses no threat to our soul. It can hang around as long as it wants. Sins only grow and multiply. We've got to kill it. Chapter 9, as we continue to move through this, God wants us to see the emptiness of sin, the guilt of sin, the insincerity of sin, the cycle of sin. The more you sin, the more you'll sin. And in chapter 9, the sorrow of sin. This is just very the first, the first few words. Rejoice not, O Israel. Sin and true joy can't truly go together. Israel could not expect God to provide for them any longer. Judgment was coming. Her happiness in sin would come to an end. And sin can give you momentary happiness, but it can't give you true joy. And it's in God's love to denounce it. Again, he says, you have played the whore, forsaken your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Verse 3, they shall not remain in the land Ephraim's going to Egypt. They're going to eat unclean food. They're not going to pour out any more offerings. Their sacrifices are gone. They're going to be like mourning all the time. Verse 6 says they're going away to destruction. It's the end. It's over. Don't be rejoicing. Don't be so happy in your sin is what God is saying. Israel was rejoicing in the benefits of God but not in God himself Israel was happy about her prosperity when she should have been sorrowful in her spiritual death. That's what Matthew 5 is all about. Remember the, the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus says, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst and seek after righteousness. They're the ones going to be filled. In verse, uh, and then in chapter 10, the sorrow of sin. And then chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, the root of sin Look at verse 2. It says, their heart 
is false. So here's the root. Your heart, it's false. And now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars. He'll destroy their pillars. For now they will say, oh, so now they're going to say, verse 3, oh, we have no king. We do not fear the Lord. Now they're going to say, okay, this is why it's going on. But notice verse 4. They utter mere words. Empty oaths. They make covenants. What's he saying here? The root of sin is in the heart. It takes place in the deepest part of our hearts, and it, God takes it personally. God takes it personally. He will punish the sinner. And for many, repentance will come too late. This is quoted in the book of Revelation, uh, verse 8 of chapter 10, where it says all this stuff's going to happen. They're going to say to the mountains, cover us, and the hills fall on us. This is the tragic end of someone's life who's caught in sin. God's judgment had come, but repentance was too late. At the end of the day, all they had was talk, 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 talk. That's what it says in verse 4. They utter mere words. Just a lot of talk, but no true conversion, no true heart. In God's love, he denounces our sin. There's something great that happens in the last four chapters of this book that you wouldn't see coming if we stopped it here. That is, in love, God offers us life. In love, God engages the sinner, he denounces our sin, and then he offers us life. It's a picture of restoration. So the, main, the dominant emphasis on the last four chapters is on the restoration forgiveness of God. He, they, he does continue to call them out for their sin. And there are other places that we skipped over, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 6, chapter 8, that hint at restoration, even throughout God's judgment and indictment on them. But these last four verses, the main chord, the main song is on the restoration and forgiveness of God. And if, if that was heavy for you and you're thinking, man, that's, that's a lot. I didn't realize all this about me. Chapters 11 through 14 are going to be all the sweeter to you. Because we have a picture, chapter 7 is a picture of, of, of restoration. Notice what he says in chapter 11 verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I. I taught Israel how to walk. I took them up by their arms. They did not know that it was I who healed them. I led them, I love this, with cords of love, of cords of kindness, with bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down and fed them. I want to go back to verse 1, because if you, if you recall the phrase, out of Egypt I called my son, remember, Matthew would use that same phrase to refer to Jesus. Here's the great thing. If you want to know what the great thing about Jesus is, here's part of it right here. Okay, the identification of God through Jesus, with his people through Jesus. The identification of God with his people through Jesus. And if, if, you, if that still doesn't make sense to you, then you haven't been listening to the past 25 minutes of my message where we just went through all this sin. Do you not get the grace of this? The identification of God to his people through Jesus. Hosea calls Israel my son. Matthew, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, calls Jesus my son. We see the wonderful way Jesus identifies with his people. Like Jesus came to the world and says, I'm one of you. 
I'm going to identify with you. I'm going to take on the form of you. I'm, he was perfect. He was sinless. Yes. But he came and he said, I'm going to identify with you. But something that gets even more astonishing. And that's in verse 8. Notice what, Jesus, what God says in verse 8. After all the things we just read about, God says, how can I give you up? Oh, Ephraim, how can I possibly hand you over? God will not fail his children. I mean, get this. God just got done saying all of that, that we just looked about, all the denouncing of sin. And yet, his love and his compassions are stirred when he thinks of Israel. He thinks of Israel, this whore of a nation, practicing all sorts of lawlessness and prostitution and evil and murder and idolatry. And when he thinks of Israel, his compassion is stirred within him. Is that not astonishing? That God's love is a love that will not let you go. A love that is greater than all your sin. That if you are in Christ, then God is evermore in you and for you. And whatever messiness you bring into your life, it's his mess. Once God has you, he will not give you up. God looks at the sin of his child and he is overwhelmed with love for them. God looks at your sin, if you're a child of his, and he is overwhelmed with love for you. His compassions are stirred. Now I want you to know, God is not looking at lovely people and is overwhelmed by love. He is looking at sinful people, adulterous people, idolatrous people, and he's stirred by love. That's what Romans 5, 8 is all about, isn't it? God shows his love for us in this way. What? While we were still, say it sinners, Christ died for us. Chapters 12 to 13, God revisits the unworthiness of Israel. He kind of shows them again their depth of sin. Verse 8 says, here's what, of chapter 12, kind of again shows what Israel's thinking. Out of all this love, Israel's saying, oh, but I'm rich. I found wealth for myself and all my labors. They can't find iniquity in me. The literal and spiritual prostitution, idolatry, bloodshed, and oppression. And Israel says, hey, life is good. I've got money. I've got health. Don't talk to me about sin. I'm doing what I want to do, and I'm living just fine. God needs to discipline us to remind us of his great love. Hebrews 12, it's for, from the Father's loving hand. God's discipline is God's love. Yes, his discipline comes to us, but it comes from love, which is, here's what you need to understand about God's discipline. God's discipline is not a rejecting discipline, it's a restoring discipline, if you're his child. If you belong to him, God's discipline is not a rejecting discipline, it's a restoring discipline. And we ought to rejoice because we deserve only rejection. And we have the hope of never being forsaken as a child of God because God did forsake one of his children. Only one. Only one in all the history of all the children that have ever belonged to God, God has forsaken and departed from only one, and that was Jesus Christ. It was his only son, the God-man. 
And it wasn't because Jesus was, was guilty of wrongdoing or sin. He was innocent and did no wrong. But Jesus would die on the cross and he would pay the punishment for our sins so that we can claim the promise that God will never forsake us. And look at the end of chapter 13, verse 14. We have another part that's quoted in the New Testament. Paul uses this, where he says, Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O grave, O Sheol, where is your sting? And Paul would use those exact phrases to refer to the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the victory we have. God promises to be a redeemer of death. He promises the death of death itself. And then we come to the last chapter. Which would be worthy of your time to read the entire thing. But God here is saying, repent. Verse 4, I will heal their apostasy. And then look at the next phrase in verse 4. I will love them freely. I will love them freely. He looks at all your sin, all your ruin, all your rottenness, and all mine, and he says, I'll love you freely. And when God says, I will, we dare not say he will not. God loves freely. That means that those who are in Christ will miss an eternity in hell because God loves freely. And it has nothing to do with how good of a person you are. Or think you are. This love of God should calm every worry over finances, health, and our future. If God has promised to never leave us nor forsake us with concerning our biggest problem, that is our sin, we can trust him to be with us in suffering. Fathers, on this Father's Day, what sort of love should you show to your children knowing this love of God? A God who loves freely. This love should cause us to be a joyful people who set aside our preferences and give preference to others. This love, more specifically, should embolden us to get up from our seat and walk over to welcome a guest in our service. It should embolden us to go over and have a conversation with our neighbor, to be friendly to a waiter or waitress. This love should embolden us to speak the truth about sin and idolatry and all patience and gentleness, knowing that we too once walked in darkness. This love is a love that will not let us go. And it should tighten our grip on the Son of God who promised that very thing, that he will never let us go. What a love God has for ruined, broken sinners. Do you know him? Do you have a relationship with him? Have you trusted Jesus as your Savior so you can escape the punishment that comes because of your sin and you can have a relationship with God? God will love you freely. You don't have to bring anything to pay him for it. He's already paid for it on the cross. Trust in Jesus. You'll have life. Let's close in prayer. Lord, big book with a big message. We can say other than than the, the message and the story of Jesus dying for our sins, there's probably not a greater message in all the Bible of the way you showed your love for us. So, Lord, we just simply say this morning, thank you for a love that will not let us go. Amen.